0: Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. We are continuing to work our way through the book of Romans, uh, taking it section by section, as is our custom this morning. We will be covering verses uh, 9 through 12, so a bit of a a shorter section in Romans. We had a chance as a family to get away last week to uh, Oak Island, North Carolina, which is a little island just just north of, of Myrtle Beach and just just barely south of uh, Bald Head Island, which is where my niece and nephew who joined us said that I should live. Um, but that's where we were. And uh, it was a sweet time. I've been, been away for two Sundays, a time of rest. We ate a lot of ice cream. We played a lot of pickleball, a lot of games, a lot of family games, cards, movies, whatever. Um, but I've been excited to get back to into this book of Romans. This was actually this week was actually one of the most rewarding preps I've had in a long time, which I think will probably surprise you when, when we get into the actual passage. Um, but the Lord just was at work and gave me some greater clarity, encouraging uh, my own soul. But it was one of the more challenging sermons to write because in these four verses and and, and the symbol, the sign and symbol contained therein is a world of theology. I mean, a world of theology. Um, and it's actually a passage that kind of defies a clear outline, but I was able to uh, put one to the text and we will have three points that will lead us to, uh, the forgotten place, which I think, I hope if it, the Lord uses it the way he did in my own life, that it would be, it'll be an encouragement to your soul. A few days ago, my, my oldest daughter asked me if she and I could get matching tattoos and, uh, I declined and I have no issue with tattoos. My oldest son has one and, um, You know, I endorsed it when he got it. But for me, the issue really has to do with my own sort of... um, I have a bit of a competitive slash obsessive personality type. And so I feared, well, if I get one tattoo, it'll be two and then it'll be three and then five and then I'll have a full sleeve and then two sleeves and then I'll be like that guy you see in the circus who's covered every inch, you know, head to toe with tattoos, even his own eyelids. And, you know, that's not really a good look for a preacher. And so I thought, I'm I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to get started on that. But I have often said that if I ever did get a tattoo, I know exactly what it would be. It would be a phrase, one simple phrase that reads, the laughter of the forgiven, the laughter of the forgiven. And I say that because how nice would it be reminded uh, that those who are in Christ, those who've been forgiven by God, who've been pardoned by God, they can laugh. They can laugh loudly. They can laugh at themselves. They can laugh at their own weaknesses, their own shortcomings, because what they understand is because we've been forgiven by God, because we've been put into a right relationship with God, a right standing with God by His own grace, uh, there's nothing we can do to actually jeopardize that. So those who have been forgiven, they know that God has uh, cleansed them. They know that He now holds nothing against them. And so they laugh louder, Uh, they sing uh, more uh, passionately, they obey God's commands out of love, not out of guilt or compulsion because of the love that God has shown them. Now King David, he knew this reality, both experientially but also theologically, and he talks about that beautifully in Psalm 32, and in Romans 4, which is where we are today, the Apostle Paul quotes David and refers back to Psalm 32. So we're going to cover 9 through 12, verses 9 through 12, but I want to look again at verses 7 and 8. Romans 4, 7 and 8, here reads the word of the Lord. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is Paul writing... This is a direct quote from uh, David in Psalm 32, a psalm that David wrote after he had sinned uh, grievously against the Lord. And David says, he, he, he gives two descriptions of the blessed one. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. And blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no sin. Now, most Hebrew scholars agree that the word translated blessed in Psalm 32 and here quoted in Romans 4 is, should actually be rendered happy. There are other Hebrew words that are translated blessed. This is the Hebrew word asher, which means happy. Happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the one who understands that God will no longer hold his or her sins against him. But is that happiness... Is that blessing just for certain people or is that blessing for all types of people? Is that blessing, is that happiness for certain races, certain ethnicities, certain groups, or is it just for people of a specific family background or family lineage? This is the question that Paul will answer, anticipate and answer in the section we're in this morning. And through it, we're going to see three things, the way that God makes a promise, the way that we as humans uh, respond in a misguided fashion and the way that God fulfills a promise. So the way God makes a promise, humanity's misguided response and the way that God fulfills a promise. Romans 4 verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness... How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, uh, but, also, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You're thinking, why in the world was that a very rewarding uh, passage for you? Um, well, hopefully we'll see it here in just a few minutes. I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we'd be talking more about circumcision in this series. And uh, today is that day, but it, I think it's actually going to be Uh, don't fret. I think it's actually going to be pretty fascinating. So Paul's answering the question, who is it that receives the blessing of God's forgiveness? Who is it that actually is eligible for, we could say it that way, for for the happiness that goes along with that corresponds to being forgiven of all of our sins by God? And how was that forgiveness secured? Now this is a very important question because there were those at this church in Rome, church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are just non-Jews. And there were those in this church who said that God's forgiveness is only for the Jewish people. In fact, the Jewish rabbis of the day, uh, they taught that, that this blessed forgiveness was only uh, available to God's covenant people, the Jews. And their argument for this exclusive privilege uh, was, we are Abraham's offspring. We have come from Abraham. We are the circumcised. They came from a certain ethnic and religious lineage, Uh, but in this section, Paul will actually destroy that uh, particular notion by going back to Abraham's own circumcision and the way that Abraham received God's forgiveness. So we have to zoom out a little bit uh, for just a moment, moment and talk about covenant because circumcision only makes sense if we understand it in the context of covenant. So Let's start at the very beginning for just a moment. So we go back and there is, there's a time when there's only God. Only God exists. There are no planets. There are no plants. Uh, there are, uh, there's no world. There's no galaxy. There's no stars. Just God. There's even, not even time at that point. Only God exists. and God has forever existed. And this God who's forever existed, who's real, who's actually with us even now, um, he is all-powerful, and he is glorious in splendor, and he is awesome and majestic. And he's so powerful, in fact, that he just says the word, and the world is created. Well, this living God who's always existed, never not existed, He decides, he makes the world and everything in it, including human beings who would reflect his image. So, and God made them male and female. In the image of God, uh, he made them. But these human beings are, are nothing compared to God, they are created. God is the creator, God is again transcendent. Infinitely glorious, holy, and perfect. He needs nothing from anyone. He says to the ocean, you can go this far and no further. And the ocean only goes as far as He allows. He says to the lightning bolt, now, and the lightning strikes. Phenomenologically speaking, He, denies, he designs and makes all the creatures. But His greatest delight, His greatest delight, is actually in human beings. Those made in His image. But, but, because He is transcendent, and because He is infinitely powerful and glorious, because He is such an awesome God, His relationship with humanity is not, as a, it's not a peer relationship. It's not one of equals. Because his, He is God, His dealings with man can never be casual. They can never be laid back. They can never be flippant. Any relationship that God would have with his creation, him being the creator of the universe, is solemn and serious, and it only exists on the creator's terms. Well, God decides, determines, we should say, to condescend to humans and engage them in relationship. Fallen humanity at one point. And he does so by way of covenant. Covenant covenant is critical to rightly understand the whole Bible. In fact, the Westminster Confession and later the 1689 London Baptist Confession says it this way, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he had pleased to express by way of covenant. So think of it this way. You know, we make promises all the time. We make promises all the time. We say, I promise you, for example, I promise you I'll always be there for you. I promise you I will never let you down. And we also, we we pledge our commitments to people. If you have a a young child who went to school this week, as, as many of you did uh, do, uh, you probably said to your, your son or daughter, "I will be at this particular spot at 3: 15." That's, that's the commitment you make, and, and I'm sure you were there when you said you're going to be there. We have promises and we have commitments. We, we may even make guarantees. As you know, I was a sports reporter for CNN and NBC for a while before God called me into pastoral ministry, and, and athletes all the time. they're making guarantees. I guarantee this victory. I guarantee this will happen. We do it, maybe not with, with you know, wins and losses, but we do it all the time. I guarantee that you'll love this meal, we might say. I guarantee that uh, you won't find a friend like you find with me. Now, and those are all fine. They're, they're okay. Promises, commitments, guarantees, whatever. But a covenant is more weighty than all of those. A covenant is more serious or solemn a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties with the promise of blessing, that is for sticking with the terms of the covenant, and the promise of judgment for violating the terms of the covenant. Here's what, how pastor and theologian Carlton Wynn defines it. He says, "...a covenant is a divinely established bond between God and man with promises and obligations." God engages humanity by by way of a solemn agreement called a covenant. He didn't have to, but He did. He did so out of love and mercy and grace. God proves His faithfulness over and over again by making promises that He always keeps. Here's our first point as it relates to the way God makes a promise. God demonstrates His love and faithfulness by making and keeping Promises to his people. Now, because you and I make promises that we fail to deliver on, we sometimes project that onto God. And so we read about the promises of God in the scripture, and we know that that God himself says that he cannot lie, but we don't really, we're not really sure if we can trust God's promise. I mean, because again, we're looking at it through the lens of our own experience and our own failures. And so we say, well, I don't know, you know we, we, we make promises to people. I promise you that I'll do this and then it's only a short time later that we fail uh, to fulfill that promise and then we say, I'm so sorry. And then we explain you know, why we didn't deliver on that promise. It happens all the time. And so I frankly, I, I actually, and I, I fail at this, but I try not to say to anybody, I promise because I have no idea what's gonna happen. I mean, I have no idea anything could come up, anything could happen that would prevent me from that. So I don't wanna do that fail to keep a promise, but we do, I do, but God never fails to keep a promise. He has always been true and will always be true. There's a great line in a song that song we sing, We Will Feast, where it says, every vow we've broken and betrayed. And then it says, but you are the faithful one. One of the words most often used to describe God in the Old Testament, it's a a word that actually God uses to describe himself. It's a Hebrew word, hased, and, and it's translated a variety of ways, but it's perhaps best translated covenant faithfulness. God is different than any other person in that he always is faithful to his promises. God's character actually requires it. And the promises that God makes and keeps come to us in the form of covenant. Every covenant that God makes with man comes with promises and obligations. No, no, what are the promises? Well, the promises they differ, they vary in terms of the substance, but they are the same in form. What I mean by that is they have different pro the, the, the blessings specifically are, are different, but the form is the same. And, and so there's a promise of blessing if you if you meet this covenant stipulations, and there's a promise of judgment or curse if you fail to meet those obligations. Um, And God is the one who initiates the covenants with man. God is the one who establishes the terms of the covenant. We don't establish that. God is the one who determines what the promises of the covenant are and what the obligations of the covenant are. The Bible, you know, is filled with covenants. The Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Davidic covenant, of course, the new covenant. And sometimes when God initiates a covenant, the word covenant is not even used. It's so clear by the promises and obligations that a covenant is being established, there's a terrific movie that came out this year called called actually The Covenant, and it's a it's a war movie, so it's filled with violence and profanity, and you know it, it definitely earned its R rating, but it's a very good movie about a it's an American soldier who goes off to Afghanistan a few years back, and he needs an interpreter, and so he gets an interpreter who's a lo, local interpreter named Ahmed. And uh, he and Ahmed, they, they, they have a really tense relationship. At first, they, they don't really trust each other. They don't seem to believe in each other. But over time, that, that trust is developed, and the relationship is deepened. And then they don't say anything. They never say to each other, we're going to establish a covenant with one another. They never say that. But there's an understanding that I've got your back and you've got my back. Well, the American soldier returns home. He's played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And he returns home and he's you know, having naturally and understandably a very hard time sort of adjusting and re-entering into society. And then he hears that his interpreter has been kidnapped and he's on the run. He is on the Taliban's top, you know, most wanted list. And so be remembering, remembering this non-articulated covenant, he decides, to his wife's at least initial chagrin, I'm not going to ruin the movie for you, but he's going to go back. He's going to go back and he's going to find this interpreter and he's going to be faithful to his promise. So sometimes the word covenant is in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's a fact, it's a, as I'll explain later, it's a Hebrew phrase. You, you, you cut a covenant. Karad, bereave in Hebrew, you cut a covenant. But the word covenant is not always used to show a covenant. Much of the time it is. And when two parties enter into a covenant, they did so by way of a covenant ceremony, which included two things. It included oath-taking and blood sacrifice. So, oath-taking and blood sacrifice. The two parties would take an oath. And of course, if, you, you know, you've seen, if you've ever been to a, a, a wedding, which I'm sure you have, uh, you've seen people enter into an oath with each other, uh, enter into a covenant with each other, that is to say by promising vows and taking an oath. Um, but in ancient covenants, there would also be blood sacrifice. Again, you would cut a covenant. Now, what would happen is, typically, as an animal would be cut in two, into two pieces. The pieces of the animal would be spread apart, and those who, the parties who would enter into the covenant, the one upon whom the obligations fell, would actually walk through the parts of the animal that had been put apart, split in two. Now, that did two things. It symbolized two things. One, what we're doing today cannot be reversed, okay? You can't take Two parts of a dead animal, put it back together, it doesn't work. The other thing was symbolized, which is very important, is the person entering into that covenant was saying, may may I be like one of these, may I be like this animal, should I fail to fulfill the obligations of this covenant. So basically, the person taking the covenant was invoking upon himself or herself a death curse. Okay, going back to Romans 4 and Abraham. Some 4,000 years ago, God made a covenant with Abraham. His name was Abram at the time, who was a sheep herder from Mesopotamia. And in that covenant, God said, according to Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. You see the promises here. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Remember I said that a covenant has promises and obligations. What's the promise? A great land, a great name, a great reputation, a great blessing that would first be extended to Abraham and then after that to the subsequent generations. Now what's, what's the covenant obligation? What was Abraham required to do? I'll get to that in a minute. But there's one huge problem with this whole thing. There's one major problem with this whole covenant arrangement. God says to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed through your descendants. But here's Abraham at the time. He's 100 years old. He doesn't have any descendants. So he, there, there's something that's got to give here. How are you going to bless all nations through me and my descendants when I don't have a descendant? So Abraham points this out to God. He says in Genesis 15:3, behold, you've given me no offspring. To which the Lord says, your very own son will be your heir. And then a pivotal moment, not just in this story, not Romans, not only Romans, not only Genesis, the whole Bible, turning point of the whole Bible, a moment that would change everything, a moment that Paul would talk about in multiple letters, Genesis fifteen six, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? The promise of God for a provision from God. The promise of God for a provision from God. And Genesis 15 tells us, which Paul repeats in Romans 4 9, that it was that faith, that belief, that was counted to Abraham as righteousness. This is an incredible declaration. God reveals that faith in Him is the means by which People are accepted by Him, declared righteous by Him. It doesn't, it's not about what they do or have done. It's not what about what, what they haven't done. It is by faith that we are declared righteous by Him and become heirs of His promises. Now, what is the obligation of the covenant? That's it, faith. That's the obligation of the covenant. That's what the covenant stipulated, believing in the promise of God's provision. Now, what in the world does that have to do with circumcision? Okay, look at verse 11 uh, again, verse 11, first part of 11. He, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So when Abraham and his descendants were circumcised, they entered into a covenant relationship with God, a covenant that promised, again, all the blessings we just talked about, a great land, a great name, a great history, so on. But it also promised judgment. The curse of death for those who refuse to adhere to the covenant obligation. Belief. Now what did circumcision signify? This is so very important. It did not signify Abraham's faith. It did not signify Abraham's faith. It signified, Paul says, the righteousness that Abraham was granted by faith. It was a sign and seal of the righteousness of God which we've already seen from chapters 1 and 2, is God's saving activity. God's saving work by which he declares someone not guilty. In other words, even though Abraham believed God and then was circumcised, circumcision would not be a sign of Abraham's faith, but God's saving activity. Paul says this explicitly, and we know it to be true, further know it to be true, because circumcision was given as a sign to all of Abraham's descendants as infants. As babies. Before they were able to believe. To the babies who were circumcised, what did that say uh, to them when they learned what it was? Well, God promises to save all who would believe. Now what was the seal, Romans 4? The seal was God's confirmation of that promise. Just like an ancient king. you seen any old movies or old television shows about you know, these dynasties of old. Just like an ancient king would put a seal on a letter with his signet ring. And he would, he would fasten it to the letter. And that would be a confirmation. This is true, true, and it's truly coming from me. Circumcision would be God's confirmation of his promise to save all who believe. But how would circumcision communicate those things? This is, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who's going to geek out on this, but this is so fascinating. Remember I said that a covenant includes promises and obligations? Promises of what? Blessing and judgment. Blessing for those who adhere to the covenant obligations. Cursing, uh, judgment for those who don't. Um, well, circumcision was a sign that, promised to, uh, that pointed to the promise of blessing and judgment. Circumcision was a sign that, promised, that pointed to the promise of blessing and judgment. The cutting off of skin pointed to the judgment due to those who would not profess faith in God's provision they would be forever cut off from fellowship with God from his forgiveness and acceptance and as a young hebrew boy would notice his body he would realize this would point to in a way of course he couldn't fully fathom but those it points to the judgment the promise of judgment to those who would not believe But the cutting off of skin, stay with me on this, also pointed to the promise of God's blessing, the promise of God's provision, namely the one who himself would be cut off, not just a piece of him, but his whole body destroyed on the cross where he would be cut off from the Father. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cut off from the father's loving fellowship and the wrath of God rained down on him instead. Anticipating you say, well, I don't know, that seems that seems kind of like a stretch. Anticipating the coming Messiah, Isaiah wrote about him, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. The sign of circumcision that Abraham received pointed to two things again: the judgment that would befall all who would not believe in God's provision. But the cutting of skin also pointed to the forgiveness that would come through the coming one who himself would be cut off for our disobedience. Now look at the last part of verse 11 and verse 12. The purpose was to make him the father, this is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So all who believe, all who believe in Christ, the coming one, they are the children of, the true children of Abraham. Physical circumcision in itself does nothing to save anyone. Circumcision is a call to believe. So what verse 12 means. It's not those who are physically circumcised, merely circumcised who are saved. But those who follow in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, and I, I.e., those who believe. So, here are the the four things that circumcision did. It was a sign that is, say, it, it pointed to the blessing and the curse of those of the covenant. It was a seal; it guaranteed to the heart those that God would do what He said He would do. It summons; it was a summons to those who were circumcised. Believe, believe on the one who was promised, and it also warned. It was a warning of judgment for those who would not believe. So circumcision did not save anyone. It was a sign and symbol of God's saving work. Here's our second point. Neither circumcision nor any other religious rite has ever saved anyone. Each points to the one who would save all who believe. Now, think of any, you can think of any religious right you can, you can come up with, anything you can conjure up. Circumcision, baptism, the Lord's table, baby dedication, none of those things saves. None of those things has any power to save. Each in, his own, in its own way points to the Savior. Now this gets even deeper and way more majestic. Remember I said that when two parties entered into a covenant, they would pass through the cut-in-half animal, signifying uh, that death would come to those who violated the covenant? Well, who passed through The animals? when God established the, his covenant with Abraham. Who passed through the animals and invoked upon himself the death curse? Did Abraham pass through the animals? He didn't. Who did? Genesis 15 describes that covenant ceremony like this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch Passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to, this, to your offspring, I will give this land. Here's this great covenant between God and Abraham. Abram at the time. It was established. Only passing through the carcasses was not Abraham, thereby taking on himself the judgment for covenant failure, but a smoking fire and a flaming torch passed through the middle. What in the world does that mean? The smoking fire. And the flaming torch are emblems that express the very presence of God. They are what we call theophanies, manifestations of God. Now, God can manifest himself any way he wants to. But he often did so in the scriptures through fire and smoke. What does fire communicate? The holiness and the awesome power of God. Hebrews 12, 29 says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is what? A consuming fire. Smoke, on the other hand, represents the incomprehensibility of God. When the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he is enveloped by smoke, the smoke of incense, so as not to look on the mercy seat and suffer the wrath of God. These are manifestations of God. And in Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham instead of Abraham, passing through the animal cut in half, invoking death for disobedience, God himself passes through. God is saying to Abram, this is why this was so rewarding to me, this prep. God is saying to Abram, and by implication to all of God's people, This covenant does not depend on your obedience, but on mine. I swear by my own life that these promises will come to pass. Here's our final point. In Christ, God Himself takes on the promised judgment for our covenant disobedience and credits His own righteousness to us by faith. As we're going to see in chapter 5, in Adam, as our head and our representative, we entered into a covenant with God. It's sometimes called the covenant of works. Some of the writers of the 1689 like the covenant of life. But what it is, it's a, it's a covenant that, where God promises to give us life for our perfect and perpetual obedience and promised judgment, a death curse, for our disobedience. But in Adam, we fell we disobeyed, and we violated the the covenant of our rebellion, or the, the terms of that covenant by our rebellion, and we continued to violate the terms every day. But Jesus, we just sang about it, the second Adam, the better Adam, perfectly obeyed all the covenant stipulations and even took on the curse, the promised judgment for us, so that all who trust in Jesus Christ receive God's full acceptance, forgiveness, righteousness and love apart from any personal piety or goodness or national identity or racial identity or religious ritual that those things are not what matter it is about believing in him now i open this message by talking about the laughter of the forgiven the happiness that goes along with god's forgiveness well, that happiness that goes along with God's forgiveness, according to the English Puritan Thomas Vincent, is actually the closest thing we'll ever experience to heaven on this, you know, on this earth. The, 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 the joy, the blessedness of forgiveness. In fact, in 1665 in London, Vincent, Vincent preached a one-hour sermon on one verse, Psalm 32.1, and it was called, the, the sermon was called, Wherein doth appear the blessedness of forgiveness, and how may it be obtained? It's a beautiful sermon. The Puritans, uh, they they would often preach these long sermons on one verse, which was really less of an exposition and more just kind of a topical sermon. Um, But their language is so rich and their theology is so deep. And here's what Vincent said in that sermon about forgiveness. Pardoned persons have the beginnings of heaven here in this life, in the work of grace and sometimes foretastes and first fruits of it. In other words, the greatest joy that we can ever experience on this life is the recognition of, at the very soul level, that we have been fully and completely forgiven. That God's not holding it against us. God's not going to bring up something we did and put it in our face against us. He's not waiting for that perfect moment when we're really low to bring it out and say, well, yeah, but you also did this. No. That joy comes with being forgiven, knowing about our forgiveness, understanding our forgiveness. Think about what you desire most when you get to heaven. Certainly it's to be with Jesus. And certainly understandably and rightly is to be with the people who've gone ahead of us who are in Christ. One of my kids asked me the other day, dad, you've done all these funerals over the years. Which funeral was the hardest to do? In other words, uh, who did you realize that you would miss the most? That's a, that's a tough question. One reason we look forward to heaven is to be with those who've gone on before us. But there's another reason. We long to be free from guilt. We want so badly to be free from shame, to have all of that lifted, all of that expunged. How nice will it be to never feel again like you've disappointed someone who loves you? That is what those who have been forgiven get a foretaste of even here on earth with God's forgiveness. Now, when the scriptures talk about the Messiah being cut off, they speak of him being cut off from the land of the living. Psalm 88, a messianic psalm, describes the Messiah as being cut off and put into the land of forgetfulness, the forgotten land, the forgotten place. When we think about forgetting something, we think about, you know, there's something slipping our mind or maybe, you know, we we can't bring it, we can't recall it. But in Hebrew thought, forgetting went well beyond the realm of thought and into the world of action. What I mean is forgetting referred to an act that demonstrated that the forgotten thing is no longer a factor. It doesn't even exist anymore. When Jesus was cut off for our sins, signified by circumcision, He not only paid for our sins by virtue of His death and resurrection, He took our sins to the forgotten place. They were not just cast out of mind, but your sins, your failures, your most egregious crimes, my sins and my failures, they were were not just sort of put out of mind, they were decisively and forever eliminated. They no longer exist. They will never exist condemn us. You may be haunted by the things you've done. You may be ashamed of the sins you've committed. And maybe maybe you're even unwilling or unable to talk about those things. They bring so much pain, so much shame, and they may resurface in your mind and bring you guilt or embarrassment or shame. But if you're in Christ, your sinful past has not just been put out of mind, it no longer exists to God. It has been taken to the forgotten place where it has been decisively and forever eliminated. Instead, God sees you as perfectly righteous, blameless and pure, forever secure in His love, not because of anything you have done or could ever do, but because of the one, the second Adam, the last Adam, the one who was faithful to obey all that God has commanded and who lived and died in our place so that we would receive all the benefits of his obedience, his death and resurrection by faith. Let's pray.